I was thinking the other day about how many times we hear on a daily basis or perhaps on a regular basis that it is all up to us. Of course, growing up, I remember the Smokey the Bear commercials, right? Only you can prevent forest fires. It's all up to you. Remember the cartoon Captain Planet? After the cartoon was over, because it was all about a superhero who was there to save the planet from pollution, after the episode would be over, there'd always be that only you can save the planet. If you watch the news, oftentimes a, a politician will get up and they'll say to you or say to the camera, those of you out there, it's up to you to do this. If you think about it, if it was truly up to us in all of those cases, what a great amount of anxiety we would have. We get anxious. I mean, we get anxious as parents, right? When we understand the things that our children need. We get anxious for the things that we want them to have. And we think to ourselves, it's all up to me. Caretakers, people who take care of those who are sick. Sometimes they can feel this enormous pressure to think it's all up to me to get them through this. Sometimes you find this kind of idea in a local church. Certainly pastors are prone to it. It's all up to me. Sunday school leaders, ministry leaders, they can think, you know what? If you, if you lead a large ministry, you might find yourself from time to time tempted with the thought, it's all up to me. Last week, we started talking about the Holy Spirit and how he was sent by the Father and the Son to the believer, and we listed out a few things to start with. We talked about how we need the help of the Holy Spirit because we are weak. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We looked last week at the idea that we need the Holy Spirit in order to, to, uh, to, to line up with what the Father and the Son are doing. We need the help of the Holy Spirit in order to learn from the Scriptures, in order to remember the Scriptures. But we want to expand a little bit more today. We remind ourselves the reason this has come up is Jesus is giving his farewell sermon to the disciples. He's going away and the disciples are fearful. And we know they're fearful because after Jesus' crucifixion, they, uh, when he's arrested, he, they run scared. After the crucifixion, Jesus finds them holed up in a room. After his ascension, same things happens. They're, they're afraid because Jesus is not there. Now it comes into chapter 15, and Jesus says, if you're going to, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Chapter 14, we're told that we are to keep his commands. Here, the idea is that we keep his commands, we abide in him. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in our life. But I also want to point out to you in verse 16 of chapter 15, he makes a point of saying, I chose you. That means our relationship with Christ is all about grace, but it also means that, that our relationship with the Holy Spirit is all about grace. We are given the Spirit. The Spirit is a gift so that we can keep the commands, so that we can abide in Christ, so we can bear fruit. 
The Holy Spirit is there for us to do the work of Jesus. And here our passage this morning, starting in verse 18, we come face to face with the reality that we have to do this work. We are called to do this work in less than ideal circumstances. This morning I'm going to give you four points, and then after the four points we're going to make two applications. Number one, the first thing we note here is pretty simple. We will be hated because of Jesus. We will be hated because of Jesus. Jesus here starts in verse 18 by talking about what the world loves and what the world hates. And we're told as believers to be remembering that Jesus was hated first. The world hated him. Now, one of the things that we know that the Holy Spirit's going to do is he's going to make us more like Jesus. Put us, as we said, more and more in line with God the Father and Christ the Son. So the, the Jesus is saying here, as the Holy Spirit's working in your life, remember that the world hated me first, and that means it's going to hate you. He also tells them that if you were conformed by the world, instead of being uh, being worked on by the Holy Spirit, if you were being conformed by the world, the world would love you. Now, we know this experientially, don't we? It's very easy to see that when a person becomes more convinced of the things of Jesus, they stop fitting in certain places. When I became a Christian at 16... It was almost immediately apparent that some of my friends and I would no longer fit together because I was being conformed by something different than them. It's also very easy to see that when a person embraces certain ideas and trends that are found in the world, they become more and more accepted. The fact that it is true has pulled many people that I know towards being more friendly with the world. And it makes me more concerned for our youngest believers as this difference between hatred of the world and the love of the world is becoming sharper and sharper and sharper. But we know here also Jesus says that the world's hatred of us comes uh, comes from more than just the fact that we follow Jesus. Again, verse 19, Jesus said, the world hates us because he chose us. In 1 Peter we're told that there is a kind of persecution that comes to the Christian because of what they do. But there's also a kind of persecution that comes to the Christian in spite of what they do. The idea being, it would be foolish for us to think that the reason we're hated is because we're not good enough. Lots of people love to give that excuse, don't they? Well, I don't follow Jesus because Christians are rude. I don't follow Jesus because they're horrible tippers. I don't follow Jesus because this one time we went to the church and nobody said hi to me. Be foolish to think that that's really the reason. And we can, we can get caught up in thinking to ourselves that if we were just nicer, if we just tipped a little better, If we made sure to say hello to everyone, then people might embrace Christ. And and what Jesus is kind of showing us here is that's foolish thinking. Brings me to point number two. That there is a pride, or the pride, I should say, is the temptation of being hated. 
Pride is the temptation of being hated. So in verse 20, Jesus addresses a common temptation that comes with pride. What I mean by that is Jesus makes it very clear here that he's the master and we are the servants. And what does he say here? The servant is not greater than the Lord or greater than the master. The idea here is pretty obvious. He's warning them that there might come a point in your life as a Christian, as the world hates you, that you might think to yourself, I don't deserve to be treated this way. Now, we might not word it this way in our heads and in our heart, but we're going to think to ourselves, you know what? I'm too important to be persecuted. I'm, uh, I, I'm too special, too significant to be hated. Why should I have to put up with being hated by the world? Now, the disciples thought this way. They thought themselves too important. They were too important to have to put up with people being rude to them. Remember, they went to Samaria and there were people who were rude to them. And what did they want to do? They wanted to call down fire from heaven. We don't deserve to be treated this way. Verses 21 to 22, Jesus describes the world being full of pride. He says, one of the reasons the world is going to hate the Christian, one of the reasons that the world hates Jesus is because Jesus shines a big old spotlight on their sin. And he doesn't just expose them, he leaves them without excuse. He goes right after their pride about their sin. In Romans, the Bible describes that people love their sin. And other people cheer them on in their sin. And so there's a lot of pride in it. And Jesus says, that's the world. It's full of pride about their sin. But Jesus not only exposes their sin, he exposes the fact that that they're foolish. The world today, for example, thinks to themselves that, that people can have unbridled physical intimacy and everybody can be happy and fine. And yet more and more of us are on antidepressants. More and more of us are going to the hospital and the emergency rooms describing having mental health problems. And what Jesus exposes is this foolishness of them trying to embrace their sin and trying to claim that it's going to make them happy. My point here is Jesus is telling his disciples they need to put away that kind of pride. Put away the pride that says, I don't deserve to to be dealt with this way. Number three. The third thing that we find in this text is Jesus explains that humans are totally depraved. Humans are totally depraved. In verses 23 to 25, Jesus expands the world's hatred because he says, because the world hates me, it hates the Father. In Romans 1, it tells us that the world would prefer to worship the created instead of the creator. The point that Jesus is making here is that the world's rejection of Christ, the world's rejection of the Father, is total and complete. This is what theologians call total depravity. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that non-Christians only do evil. 
I bet you you know a few people who are not Christians, and they're pretty nice people. Pretty good moms, pretty good dads. That's not what that means. Total depravity does not mean that every person does evil all the time, or that they're as evil as possible that could be. What it means is in their nature, they totally and completely reject the things of God. From the top of their head down to the bottom of their feet, they are fully and completely at enmity or they are in hostilities or conflicts with God. But then the Bible says when we put our faith in Christ, Romans 5 tells us what? Now there is peace instead of conflict. And then number four, number four, the Holy Spirit is our helper. In our final verse, we finally get to a more explicit explanation of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says here, when the helper comes, that being the Holy Spirit, he will bear witness of Jesus and the Christian will bear witness of Jesus. I want you to understand the idea here is that the Holy Spirit's witness and the believer's witness are one and the same. They are a united witness. Together, the Holy Spirit and the believer are going to be called to continue Jesus' ministry. Remember, he's going away. So he's telling the disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and then you're going to work. And together, in this united, uh, joined union, you are going to go forward and continue to do the work. This Holy Spirit is going to come, and through this union, you're going to become more like me. Through this union, you will be able to abide. Through this union, you'll be able to bear fruit. And it is with this union, you are going to be called to go forward into the earth, into the world, and do the work that Jesus has been doing, to keep doing the work that Jesus has been doing. And as we've seen the setup here, that means you're going to go do it in a world that is hostile. They're going to go, the world is going to be hostile to what we do. But what the idea here is, is that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the believer together are going to be able to do the work of Jesus despite that hostility. So let's make two applications. Number one. Number one, because of the Holy Spirit, our circumstances do not provide an opportunity to not do what we're called to do. Because of the Holy Spirit, our circumstances do not provide an opportunity to ignore what we are called to do. We certainly must keep watch against pride. Against thinking to ourselves that we deserve better treatment than what, the, what Jesus experienced. Thinking that we could go and do ministry without evoking the hostility of the world. Now, there are several ways that this pride will make its way out in our lives, and I'll give you a few of them. The first one of the one way, number one, is to say to ourselves, I can wait. I can wait to do what I've been called to do until my life is a little better. I can wait until my life is a little better. Pride can manifest in that our service to Jesus, our call to to, to do his work, probably manifest by the fact that it is interrupted by the fact that we don't feel good about our place in life. 
Maybe we say, you know what, I'll, 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 I'll do it when I get a spouse. Or maybe I'll do it when I'm comfortable with where my 401k is. But pride can come out by saying, I can wait to do what Jesus calls me to do until my life is a little better. The second way, I will wait until tomorrow when I can handle this better. I will wait until tomorrow. Pride says that all I need is just a little more sleep, a quiet night at home to finish that project, some time alone to enjoy this show or that movie. Then, then I can serve Jesus. You know the problem I've found? It never ends, does it? There's always a need for a little nap, isn't there? Always wish you could take a break. Number three, another way that pride makes its way out in our life is we say right now, doing something would mean too much risk. Pride says doing something right now would be too much risk. Pride will manifest itself in our life by saying, I don't have to take risk. You know what's risky? Hospitality. Inviting somebody into your home. Giving somebody a ride. Opening your mouth and sharing Christ. Jesus is clear in this text and others that there will never be a point where we're doing what he has called us to do will, will be without risk. It's why Jesus says to people, count the cost. And number four, and the fourth one I'll give you, is pride says nobody else is under the kind of pressure that I am. Nobody else is under the kind of pressure that I am. Pride manifests itself with, with, with the idea that we compare ourselves, well, like, more specifically, we compare our miseries with others. Jesus would later tell Peter that he is going to die following Jesus. And Peter then turns and asks about John. What about him, Lord? And Jesus replies, if I want him to live forever, what is that to you? It's very easy in our pride to look at the person who has fewer children, an easier job, more money, and think, you know what? That's my excuse. I don't have what they have. So much of American Christianity is just shallow and selfish. We want all the promises. We want our faith to demand so little. That's not Christianity. Jesus said to to follow him, we have to take up a cross. We have to count the cost. We don't want to take a moment to be sober. But we've been given the Holy Spirit to overcome. To meet all the challenges that we're going to face serving Jesus. Second application I'd make with you this morning. The Holy Spirit in your life means you have not been left alone. You are not helpless. The Holy Spirit in your life means you have not been left alone. You are not helpless. Whether it's ministry or caregiving or parenting, you have not been left alone. You are not helpless when it comes to doing the things that Christ has called you to do. In Psalm 121, we're told that our help comes from God. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. This is a member of the triune Godhead. 
And as we go through our scriptures, the Bible tells us how much the Holy Spirit helps us. I'll give you a list. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. He helps us both to learn and to remember what he has written. You ever been surprised like that? I remember when I was young in my faith, really just starting to read my Bible and to learn what it says. And I remember being at work, and somebody said something to me, and out of nowhere, this verse just popped in my head. Ever had that experience? The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, and he helps us to learn and understand what is written. Number two, the Holy Spirit is told that it provides the gifts we need for the work. He provides gifts to certain individuals, and he gives certain gifts to individuals to help those do the work. He gives gifts. He gives what we need. Number three, the Holy Spirit, we're told, prays with us. He interprets. You ever mumbled in prayer? Lord, I'm not quite sure what I'm asking for. The Bible says that he relays even our hardest, even wordless prayers. Number four, the Holy Spirit is a source of security and comfort. It's a reminder that we belong to God, that we receive the promises of God. Number five, the Holy Spirit is the power you need for a changed life. Ever wanted to be a better dad? Ever wanted to get out of the, the habit of lying? Want to learn how to be generous? You want to learn how to be patient? You want to have joy? The Holy Spirit is what you need for a changed life. And then number six, the Holy Spirit is the one who helps people to see Jesus. On our own, we'll never bring anybody to salvation. So the Holy Spirit helps us to help people see Jesus. Now I want you to think about how this all plays out in your life. If you're facing a difficult time of illness or loss, you don't face it alone. The Holy Spirit is part of God's plan to help you through those times, to bring you security, to help you with the wisdom you need. Perhaps you're a Sunday school teacher. The Holy Spirit is what helps you to teach and open eyes of your students. Like I said, if you want to be a better father, a better husband, the Holy Spirit is the power you need to put off the sinful habits and put on godly habits. Those times when you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for you. He makes you more like Jesus, brings you closer to Jesus. You have not been left alone. So in our passage today, Jesus is plain and honest. The world hated him. The world's going to hate us. And they'll hate us because we're associated with him. They will hate us because they, his very existence reminds them of their sin, shows them their foolishness. Jesus is absolutely clear here. As his disciples, his servants, the hatred that the world had for him will be total. And we should not be surprised when that hatred is turned towards us. But we have not been left helpless. Jesus promised that all believers in him will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be our helper. Together, the believer in the Holy Spirit will make Jesus known to the world. We will do the work of the ministry. We will face our various struggles and our circumstances. We will do the good work of this life, and we will not do it alone. The Spirit is there to give us the tools we need to help us pray, to help us learn, to help us remember, to provide comfort, to remind us of the security we have in Jesus Christ. 
So let us not go astray. Let's put away our excuses and remind ourselves that it's not just up to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would make its way into our life. We thank you for the reality of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we see the things that we're going to face in this life, the troubles of this world, the hatred of Christ, the hatred of us, the struggles with illness and loss and the difficult circumstances we're going to face. We thank you, though, Father, for the truth of the help of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that we would see the help of the Holy Spirit as a reminder not to give out excuses. Because the Holy Spirit is in us, we have what we need to overcome. Father, let us remember that because of the Holy Spirit, we are not helpless. We have not been left alone. In all the things we are called to do, we have a helper with us. I pray this truth would sink deep into our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your blue hymnals as we close. Turn to 233.